Today's scripture reading is from John 4, 46 through 54. Please read with me the verses in bold. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Brad, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it's an honor to have you with us at Grace Sacramento as we continue our series in the, in the Gospel of John called Encounters with Jesus. This morning, uh, an encounter with a nobleman's son or with an official's, uh, an, an official's counter, encounter with Jesus. And uh, I've labeled or titled the sermon, Two Kinds of Believing. And I want to talk actually about, a, I'm going to give a sermon in two parts, two kinds of exception and two kinds of believing. When our youngest daughter was born, um, she was born with a club foot. And when she was born with a club foot, we became the beneficiaries of some of the best pediatric medical care in the world. Over the course of, we were trying to do the math this morning, we think it was about eight weeks and about four or five visits to Shriners Pediatric Hospital in Sacramento, her club foot disappeared. She was healed. There's really not another way to describe it. And when we had that experience, we also met people at Shriners. We experienced the fact that people come from far and wide because They've heard about what Shriners Hospital might be able to do for their kid. People who wouldn't normally travel that far to go see a doctor make an exception because they've heard about what Shriners Hospital might be able to do for their child who needs orthopedic surgery or has had a spinal injury. People who wouldn't normally accept charity uh, make an exception because their child has been burned and Shriners helps only for free. They only give away their care. They don't charge. And so just the possibility, right, of help, of healing for your child makes it worth it, makes it worth traveling, makes it worth receiving, makes it worth making an exception for the, for the very possibility that your kid might be healed. And that, I think, is the kind of impression you get of the uh, official from Capernaum whose son is ill who comes 
to Jesus. This man had heard of the kinds of things that Jesus was doing in Judea, and the sheer possibility that he might be able to come and heal his son, who was at the point of death, was worth the risk. It was worth the try. It was worth the trip, which was like 20 miles on foot to go find Jesus and ask this question. It was worth the ask. And if even if you didn't really believe in that sort of thing, that, you know, so, a, a prophet someplace could heal, if you'd heard about this and your kid was on death's door, it was worth a try. It was worth making an exception. And that might be the sort of case here, whether or not this official was really a, a person of faith, we don't know. That's not uh, told to us in the text, but we do know that he's an official. The, the word that the scripture uses tells us that he was someone officially attached to the service of Herod Antipas, and Herod Antipas was the Tetrarch of Galilee, which is just a fancy way of saying a puppet governor of the Roman Empire. And most of the Jewish faithful would make assumptions, uh, they would make judgments about whether or not someone could be involved in serving the empire and be a person of faith. Uh, can somebody who really loves our God conspire with Rome? We don't know uh, whether or not he was a man of faith, but we realize that even if he was, he was willing to make an exception in his skepticism. Uh, if there was a God, if there was such a thing as a prophet who could heal, then the possibility of his son being saved from death was worth the risk. And so he was willing to make an exception. And this morning I'm calling that the skeptic's exception. I expect that there are at least a few people in the room or watching online today who might identify with the official. Maybe you've really made a mess of things and although you would call yourself a non, as in non-religious, nothing else has really truly filled the void that you feel in your heart or been able to help you understand why you deal with so much anxiety. And so you're wondering if maybe you should make an exception. Try and see if there's anything real about Jesus, anything helpful about what he teaches or any solutions in Scripture for the sort of weight of guilt that you feel in life because of the things that you've done? If, is there a God, and is he good? Is his word true? Maybe like the official of Capernaum, you're skeptical, but there's just enough at stake in your life that you have come to see if whether or not maybe what you've heard from somebody about Jesus might be true. I think there's, an, there's a different temptation, and it's almost the mirror image of the one that I just described. Maybe this describes you. Maybe this isn't your first time at church. Christianity is actually very familiar terrain for you. In fact, others look at you, and maybe they would say that you're one of the faithful, but you currently find yourself in circumstances where what you're hoping Jesus will do in your life just doesn't seem to be happening. Maybe you're single and you don't want to be and you're lonely or you're in a difficult marriage and you're starting to wonder if you need to maybe make an exception and be a little bit less committed to your, the priority of sexual purity that you read in the scriptures. Maybe 
Maybe there's something to be said for making exceptions. Maybe you're working hard and you're just not getting ahead the way that you think you deserve to, and there's a growing temptation that if you just make some little exceptions in integrity here and there and grease the wheels and fudge the numbers, that you might get what's coming to you, that you might get what's yours. Maybe there's conflict. Someone has hurt you in such an exceptional way that you're letting yourself be convinced that the pursuit of forgiveness and reconciliation shouldn't have to apply in this situation. You should make an exception. Or maybe you're a kid. Maybe you're a teenager, a a young adult, and following Jesus has just always been what your family does. It's what mom and dad do, and it's what's been required of you, and you're thinking maybe independence means starting to make a few exceptions. Maybe that's what freedom looks like, doing what I want instead of what I've been told. And I'm calling that a a believer's exception. Two kinds of exceptions this morning, the skeptic's exception and a believer's exception. The story, however, about two kinds of believing. Occasionally, Olivia, my wife, will send me screenshots or... uh, or, or text uh, from uh, somebody that she follows, and the title of the thing is uh, Inspirational Text from Teenagers. And so we'll get, I'll get a meme, and, the, and the, the text, these are real texts from teenagers to their parents, apparently, and the text will say something like, how does eating cold turkey help you stop smoking? Or what's that radar thing that tracks Santa? Is it the NASDAQ? But one of the reoccurring themes in these texts from teenagers is, a, is, is an attitude like this. Here's two or three of them. Here's a text from a teenager to a parent. You are going to bring me a waffle at 9.15. Or get me lemonade, do it. This one is my favorite. Can you bring my science homework and $300? None of them said, I love you, Mom, or I miss you, Dad. Although, to be fair, one of them did say this, Happy birthday, I just Venmoed you $6. Jesus' first reaction to the official's approach to him is as if he's just received a text like this. Jesus confronts the official and really everyone who is listening with the fact that they have not come because they've come for Jesus, but they've come to see what they can get from Jesus. He says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. They are not there because they want to know Jesus, but because they want to know if Jesus can do something for them. And to his credit, the official doesn't defend himself. He receives a rebuke, and it's as if he never really claimed to be interested necessarily in following Jesus. He had heard of Jesus and what he had allegedly done in Judea, and so he's come down to Cana to see if he could heal his son's terminal illness. And he says, sir, come down before my child dies. And what happens next 
is instructive, I think. Uh, it's instructive whether you're a skeptic wondering how to discern if the God of the Bible is really a God who exists, or if you're uh, a longtime believer or have been uh, a member of a, a, a believing community for a long time and you're starting to feel doubt and wondering whether or not God is good and worth following. So it's instructive for the skeptic's exception and it's instructive for the believer's exception. Jesus says to him, go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke. He chose in this moment to act as if what Jesus said was good and true. I'm going to call that the first kind of believing in the story. Actively believing God's word. Choosing to act whether or not you're convinced as if God's word is true and it's good. For a skeptic, for a skeptic this would mean testing to see if God's word and, and what it says proves to be life-giving and fruitful in life. If it gives wisdom, if it guides you um, in, in a path that uh, brings life. Maybe you're not convinced that the Bible is God's word and deserving of authority in your life, but you want to know if it's true. One good way to test it would be to read it with the intention of uh, putting what you find there in action to test and see if it's good, to taste and see if it's true and good. This is essentially what the official does. We don't, we, we we're told that he believed the word that Jesus said and acted on it. He turns towards home under the assumption that what Jesus says is true and knowing that he's going to find out one way or another. And so will you and I if we pursue understanding what the scriptures say and then testing to see what we find there. You'll soon find out if the God of the Bible is really a God who exists. I'd recommend, if this is you, if you find yourself identifying with the skeptic's exception, I'd recommend getting some help. Uh, ask someone who follows Jesus where they think you should start reading in the scripture and uh, see if they'd be willing to, for you to ask them questions. Uh, choose someone who isn't a know-it-all, someone who's a friend who will tell you the truth if they don't know the answer to your question as you're reading the scripture, someone who, when you look at them, you say, they, they don't have it all together, but they're trying to follow Jesus. I commend that to you. The same is true for the believer struggling to discover whether or not God is true, God is good. Why pursue purity? Why forgive? Why follow what mom and dad believe? I think it's helpful that the Gospel of John here uh, has presented this story in a way that makes it clear that this, this man is doing what Jesus says, and he's not doing it out of fear. He's not obeying because he thinks he'll be punished if he doesn't. He's not doing what Jesus says in some effort to measure up and to justify himself. We don't get the impression that he cares for Jesus' endorsement. He's very clear, I am here because... I want my son to live. He simply wants to know if his son can be healed. And if Jesus' will is for his good, if what Jesus says is good, to believe the word of God, not just with your head, but with your actions is the way to test that. Not just to be a rule follower or just to avoid punishment, but to see if God is good. 
And you'll discover if it brings freedom and if it uh, fulfills the promises that it makes in life. In Charlotte Bronte's classic novel, Jane Eyre, Jane has fallen in love with a married man and has been given the opportunity to move in with him, purportedly to help care for his mentally ill wife. Uh, This is something that normally Jane would never have considered before, but it ignites an incredible conflict in her heart. Why not make an exception? Bronte expresses this wrestling in Jane's heart. She writes, why not soothe him, save him, love him, tell him you love him, and will be his? Who in the world cares for you? Or who will be injured if you do this? But ultimately, as you read the story, Jane decides against the passion that drives her and decides to live as if what Jesus says is true and good. Bronte writes, Jane's thoughts again, she decided, I will keep the law given by God. I will hold to the principles received by me when I was sane and not mad as I am now. Laws and principles that are Laws and principles are not for the times when there is no temptation. They are for such a moment as this, when body and soul rise in mutiny. If at my individual convenience I break them, what would be their worth? They have worth, or so I've always believed, and if I cannot believe them now, it's because I am insane. They are all I have in this hour to stand by. And there I plant my foot. We need to hear these kinds of stories. I was reminded yesterday morning at the men's breakfast when we gathered and we were praying together and we heard Robert Thiel's testimony that this is also the sort of thing that we need to do in community. We need to gather with uh, believers and hear their stories like we heard from Krista this morning. We need to be surrounded by others who can encourage you to attempt and to help you to apply God's word with wisdom in your life. Others who can tell stories not only about when they were faithful, but stories about when they were not and of how God was, his grace was still sufficient for them and how his word was still good in spite of the times when they thought it was a good idea to make exceptions. The passage goes on in verse 51. It says that as the official, as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. And so he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that this was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all of his household. This is the second kind of believing in the passage. The passage already said that the father believed. Remember, it said he believed the word that Jesus said and turned to go home. He believed that his son was healed. So he acted as if what Jesus said was true. But when he discovered that the boy was not only recovering, but restored, and not only that, but as far as he can tell, at the very moment that Jesus said he, was, he would live, that that happened, now the official is confronted with who Jesus is. John, later in his gospel, in John chapter 20, he says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, 
But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. If Jesus is who he says he is, then it's not just a boy in another town who's been brought back from the dead in this story, but it's actually the official himself and all of his household who believed. When the Gospel of John recounts the miracles that Jesus does, it almost always uses this word, signs. Not miraculous wonders, but signs. Because in John, all of his miracles are signs pointing towards something more important than than the miracle itself a greater, deeper fulfillment of which the miracle is just a a taste. It's just a model. It's just a rehearsal, just a tiny example. And is there a clearer picture of what Jesus came to do for all who would believe than a boy who did nothing to reach out to Jesus to earn his favor, being brought back from the clutches of death by a word from God? The word of God. It's not the father's effort that saves the son. It's not a 20-mile walk that earned his healing. It's not the amount of faith that the father had or his perfect timing. There's other stories in the Gospels that tell us about mechanics of Jesus' wonders, the way he touched people or the way people touched him and the things that he did. But in this story, there is only a word. Go, for your son is healed And the word of God saves. The Gospel of John says in its preamble that Jesus is the word. Jesus was the word, the word of God in the flesh. God's love in a body. Jesus' purpose in the work that he did, the life that he lived, the teaching The healing was to embody the word of God. God has given us his word as we learn it from Jesus, not to be a law to measure ourselves by or uh, the threat of punishment. God has given us his word because he loves us. And he knows how to heal our wounds. And he knows how our lives could flourish. But ultimately, the scripture tells us, He's given us Jesus because it's too late for us simply to obey good enough to save our own lives. We've already made too many exceptions. It will not be our effort or our obedience that saves us or the amount of our faith. It will be the word of God. And let me tell you what the word of God has done for you. Because God so loved the world, His word became flesh and dwelled among us, but he did not come to be served, but to serve and to lay down his life as a ransom to save us from sin and death. His life was not taken from him at the cross, but he laid it down for you. And when he took it back up out of the grave at the resurrection, he also took up with him the lives of everyone who has believed in his name. The life of the official in Capernaum that says the official in Capernaum believed he and all of his household. 
This is the second kind of believing. Believing that Jesus is 